Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 47 through 50 this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's blessing now in the preaching of His Word. Oh, Father, we know that Your Word is full of great and wondrous things. We think of the wonder of Your grace, the glory of Your promises, the declaration of Your love, the, the, the kindness that You have shown to Your people in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of all of the good things, all the good, all the good commands, all of the wisdom that is given in it. And Lord, our heart rejoices at all of these things. And yet, Lord, we are also very much aware that your word contains great threats. It contains great threats and great warnings. And how we do ask that in these sections for which it is so common for man to try to evade, try to disregard, try to look past, try to, in some ways, justify the practice of not taking these things very seriously. Lord, may it be that you would grant to us this morning that when we see, when we hear in your words, that there will be a judgment to come, that this would be a warning that we would all take to heart. For Lord, we know as as our confession itself teaches that part of faith, not all of it, maybe not even the principal part, but yet a true part of faith, is in fact trembling at your threats. Give us this grace in accordance with the fear of your name, for we do ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, with this passage, we come to the end of the parables of the kingdom. This is the very last uh, parable. We will look uh, one more uh, week at uh, next week at verses two weeks actually at verses 51 and 52 as the Lord Jesus Christ gives something of just a concluding statement regarding all the parables but formally this is the last parable of the kingdom it's the last time that the Lord Jesus Christ will put forth uh, some kind of figure to describe some element some aspect of the kingdom of God it's important as we come to this conclusion to remember why it is that Christ is giving all of these parables. You remember that he is giving these parables as a response to unbelief. The kingdom of God has not come in the way that many people have expected it to come. And so are we to think 
that this kingdom as the Lord Jesus Christ has, is proclaiming, you know, even from the beginning, Matthew chapter four, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When we see all these strange things happening that we weren't expecting, does this mean that the kingdom of God has actually not come? What, what is the nature of this kingdom if this is going to be uh, its king? How are we to understand all of these things? You remember that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is giving these parables uh, to do really two things, to explain the nature of the kingdom in light of this lack of expectation and this, this, this strangeness, this surprising character of it. But also, he is speaking in these parables to show that the knowledge of this surprising kingdom must be sovereignly given. It's going to be withheld from some as it's going to be given to others. This is part of the nature of the kingdom of God. And so it's helpful then as this is the very last parable for us to remember the, the, the message of all these parables, if we put them together, what, what is Christ actually teaching about the kingdom of God? Well, you remember from the parable of the sower, he, he, the Lord Jesus Christ says there will be varied responses to the kingdom. It's not going to be the case that everyone's going to simply receive this kingdom. Um, that was what was going to be expected. It's not what actually happened, but Christ says this is actually the nature of the kingdom. There will always be some who reject it outright. There will be others who will fall away, and there will be others who endure to the end. We are then told in the parable of the wheat and the weeds that there will be a mixture even within the church of belief and unbelief all the way until the last day. In the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, we are told that the kingdom of God will surprisingly start small, that its growth will be imperceptible, but yet that the kingdom of God will advance. Then in the parables of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price, we are told that you know though, uh, though the kingdom of God will be missed by many, though it will come in surprising ways, though it will appear to be invisible in many ways, that yet for those who get it, for those who actually understand this kingdom, that it will be more valuable than anything else in their entire lives. This is, will be the nature of the kingdom of God. There will always be a mixture. The kingdom of God will appear to be invisible. It will appear to be unimpressive, but there will always be some who receive it. And those people will be willing to give up all things for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, another thing that we learn from the parables of the kingdom, and this is also comes from the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and it's actually the main emphasis of this text, is that there, there will be, in addition to this, not only will there be this, this nature of the kingdom in terms of its beginning, in terms of its reception, in terms of its continuation to the last day, but there will be on the last day a great judgment and a great separation of the righteous and the wicked. This was the thing that people expected to come quickly, and Christ is saying in this parable and in the parable of the weed and the weeds, it will in fact come. It's not going to come immediately as was expected. Even this part is surprising. And yet it will come. The very last thing the Lord Jesus Christ leaves with his people is a warning that the, in the last day, there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment. And on that day, there will be a separation of the righteous and the wicked. Now, this parable is one of the three parables that's given just to the disciples. This was not a public parable. And this one, uh, like some of the other ones as well, comes with an interpretation. The, the, in this one in, in particular, there is the parable immediately followed by its interpretation, which means this warning is given first and foremost to the church. Christ did not give this warning about judgment broadly to all people. 
when he was in a private room with just his disciples, he said, here's something you need to keep in mind. On the last day, there's going to be a separation. And on that day, there will be a great punishment for those who do not receive the kingdom of God. That is to be part of the message that is preached and that is part to be part of the thing that is to be believed by all of those who are truly a part of the kingdom. And it is the warning that must always be heeded. Now, as I've, I've mentioned and alluded to here at this point, uh, this parable is parallel to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So you'll know that uh, in the parables of the kingdom, there are some that, that come in twos. Actually, uh, all of them come in twos except for the parable of the sower. So we had the parable of the mustard seed that goes with the parable of the leaven. We have the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, and that goes with the pearl of great price. We also had the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and that one goes with this one. However, there are some important differences in terms of the emphasis of these two parables. So in the wheat and the weeds, both of them are about a mixture that persists to the last day. If you remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds, there is an enemy that comes and he sows seed among uh, the wheat. And the seed is a, a bad seed. It basically produces weeds. And they, the weeds are not taken up until the last day. So the, the weeds are allowed to grow with the weed until the last day, and then there will be a harvest, at which point there will be then the division. And we saw that this was, uh, that this was about the judgment, there, that there will be a judgment, in fact, on the last day. So there are, are some things that are similar, but there are a couple of differences, and that is, first, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, there is a greater emphasis on the mixture than there is on the judgment. So the parable of the wheat and the weeds is mostly talking about the fact that there will be a persisting mixture until the last day. So most of the parables about the fact that the enemy is sown the seed, the, the, the servants are talking about, you know, what are we to do in light of this problem? And then there is a, a, a solution given right at the end. Just wait until the end and then, and, then, and then have the separation. In this parable, there's basically nothing said about the persistence of the mixture. It's, it's said, but it's very brief. Nothing is said about that in the interpretation. The interpretation is solely about the day of judgment. The fact that this, there will be a mixture that's presupposed. And then on the last day, though, there will be this division. The emphasis is falling on the division. The second thing that is a, a difference between the parable of the wheat and the weeds and here is that in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, there is an equal focus on the end of the righteous and the wicked. In the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the Lord Jesus Christ says, on that day, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Glorious picture about the, about the blessing that will be received by those who truly believe. And then on the other hand, there will be a great punishment for those who do not believe. And they're sort of said equally. There's, there's, an, there's an interpretation given for both. But here, there is nothing said about the, the blessings that the believer is going to receive, that the just, the righteous man is going to receive. The only thing that is emphasized in this passage is the punishment that will be received by those who reject the gospel. That is to say, the emphasis in this parable, though they're very, they're very similar, they, they talk about the same general things, the emphasis in this parable falls on the day of judgment and the warning that is to be issued for all of those who will reject the gospel. And the point is to say this, the kingdom of heaven will be consummated by a day of judgment on the last day. And on that day, the wicked will receive a, an incomprehensibly great judgment and condemnation.
And that's the warning. It's the very last thing the Lord Jesus Christ says to the disciples with regard to the parables of the kingdom. This is uh, the end of it. And so we'll look at this passage then under two headings as we contemplate these, these things. As we've been doing, we'll give a brief explanation of the parable and then go into uh, uh, just looking at the parable itself and then give the, an explanation of the parable. So the, 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 the parable is given in verses 47 and 48. Then the interpretation is given in verses 49 and 50. And we'll just pull out some important points uh, with regard to the interpretation. And really most of our time will be focused on that as the parable is quite simple. And so as we, we look then at verses 47 and 48, uh, uh, again, th- this parable is put very succinctly, one of the more succinct parables, uh, much more succinct than the parable of the wheat and the weeds for which it is parallel. And you'll note uh, very simply, there is the, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a dragnet. The net is cast into the sea. It gathers fish of all different kinds. They simply bring the the net to shore, filled with all these fish. There's no division that can happen before this. And then at the end, so to speak, when, uh, when they finally bring the fish to shore, then there's a division. Some are thrown away. Some are put into vessels. So there is a, a distinction. The idea with the parable is there's a distinction between the act of catching the fish and then the, the determining of whether or not the fish is in fact good. And this is um, parallel again to the the parable of the weed and the weeds where there is this mixture until the last day. Just like in that parable, the focus is again on not just that there is a mixture in the world, a mixture of unbelief and belief in the world, but notice the kingdom of heaven is like the net that catches all kinds of fish, both good and bad. So the idea is within the visible kingdom of God, that is to say within the visible church, there will be this mixture. Uh, There will always be the mixture in the world, of course, but the point of this parable and the other one is to say that there will be a mixture even in the church, and God will allow this mixture to continue until the very last day. He'll allow the mixture to continue until the last day. There's a distinction between the catching nature of the kingdom of God and the division. The division is going to happen uh, later on the last day. Now, uh, as I mentioned then, in verses 49 and 50, we have the interpretation that is given. Uh, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. Now, one of the things, before we get formally to the interpretation as it's given, one of the important things to, to keep in mind as we round out this discussion of the parables of the kingdom is it's important to, to notice that as we look at this parable in relationship to all the others, that the parables of the kingdom uh, teach about the nature of the kingdom from its inception all the way to the very end. Here we have this last parable focusing on the end, and we've had uh, many parables speaking about the beginning, the middle point, the midway point, what it's going to be like between the comings of Christ, and then we have the end uh, as well. Uh, this, these parables give then a, a sort of a comprehensive view of how we are to understand and view the growth of the kingdom of God, how it begins, how it grows, and then how it will be uh, on the last day. And uh, one of the things that uh, we are to keep in mind then as we think about this parable and the way in which the kingdom is described is there is a concept that theologians often will speak about with regard to the kingdom of God, and that is the already and not yet which is a very important concept as we think about the kingdom of God. Um, Everything in the kingdom of God has an already component. It has really begun. That's one thing that that we see with the the parables of the kingdom. There is a beginning point. It's like a mustard seed in its beginning. It's really started. And yet, 
the day of judgment has not come. So there is an already part to the kingdom, and there is a not yet part uh, to the kingdom. Now, the reason why so many things were surprising with regard to the kingdom of God in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ is because this already not yet component was not understood. And so, you know, people could look and they could see in the prophets, look, the kingdom of God is going to come with a day of judgment. And so with, so when we see the day of judgment, then we know the kingdom of God has come. And so people expected then, if the Lord Jesus Christ has come, and if uh, he is in fact the king of this kingdom, then the world's about to be judged. And Christ is, he's got to come and at least destroy the Romans. He's going to be bringing, bringing in and ushering in a new era of righteousness where there's going to be uh, this judgment. Now, the point of this parable is to say that judgment is actually going to happen, but the inauguration of the kingdom, according to my other parables, is going to happen first. There's a distinction between what has already happened and what's going to happen in the future. And yet there is this link also between what has already happened and what has happened is what is going to happen in the future. So if I were to say, as I've said, the judgment day has not yet happened, in some way that's true. But actually, in another way, the kingdom of God did actually start with the day of judgment. If you're asking, well, where was this day of judgment wherein the kingdom of God started? The answer is at the cross. You think about the way in which the cross is described when the Lord Jesus Christ is nailed to that cross. Matthew describes the sun turning dark, the moon turning to blood. There is an earthquake. All of these kinds of things. The veil of the temples is torn in two. What kind of imagery is that? Where does that come from? That comes straight out of the prophetic oracles that speak about the day of judgment. What, what, what are you to expect about the day of judgment? You are to expect those kind of cataclysmic things happening. And when the Lord Jesus Christ was put on that cross, the idea is that what, what, what was signaling, what God was signaling by having all those things happen at once, only when he was on the cross, is what he was signaling was that the Lord Jesus Christ was enduring the day of judgment for his people. The day of judgment was, in this sense, brought forward from the last day to be endured by Christ there on that cross. And then when he's raised from the dead, it's the same thing. What will happen on the last day? Well, the dead will be raised, clearly. Has the dead, have the dead been raised? Well, in some sense, no. We're, we're still waiting for the resurrection of the dead. But the point of Christ's resurrection is that he has already begun to participate in that end time resurrection from the dead. He's the first fruits of the single resurrection that has already begun in him. With the day of judgment, there is a sense in which it has already happened. There's an already not yet component to the day of judgment. There's an already not yet component to the resurrection of the dead. Christ has endured it. And this, brothers and sisters, is how we know that in fact, that in fact, the kingdom of God has come. How do you, how do you know that there will be a day of judgment in the future? Well, if it already happened for the Lord Jesus Christ, surely someone who's not the eternal son of God, surely they won't be able to avoid the day of judgment. If, if when the sins of God's people, when they're put upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if then there is the real day of judgment that happens on Christ just for him, then surely, surely that is absolute proof that there will be a day of judgment for all people. There must be a day of judgment uh, for all people. And so there is this already not yet element to the kingdom of God. And this, brothers and sisters, again, was the thing that was surprising. 
everyone knew that the kingdom of God must be inaugurated with a day of judgment, that the prophets were prophesying this. And what Christ is saying with this parable is that, yes, that is going to happen. And in many sense, in many ways, again, Matthew was even indicating that it did happen. But nevertheless, there will be something unexpected, and that is there will be a delay. There will be a time when the fish are caught, they have to be brought to the shore, and then on the last day, there will be a separation. And that's the thing that nobody was expecting. That's the thing that nobody understood. And it's the reason why many people did not receive the Lord Jesus Christ as king. Where is this? Where, where is his coming? He, he did not come in the way in which we, in fact, have uh, expected. And so, and so there is this, this is something we need to keep in mind with regard to all the parables of the kingdom, but particularly this one. There is this already not yet uh, element to the kingdom of God uh, itself. Now, as we think more, more particularly about the interpretation of this particular parable, it's important, again, to keep in mind the, 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 the links between the wheat and the weeds and and also this one. Notice in the interpretation, uh, in some ways, the interpretation given previously about the wheat and the weeds is, is basically assumed with regard to this one. Uh, so Christ says in verse, verses 49 and 50, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just like in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the angels are those who are doing the separating. But notice here, there's basically just an assumption. There's no need to even point, point out. The idea is, you remember from the last one, the angels are doing the separating. So, so too here, the angels are doing the, separate, the, the, the separating. The function is the same. And uh, the fish are also not separated until, uh, until the end. There are even then uh, some elements in the parable that are not explicitly explained. And this, this, again, I think the reason for this is because some things, everything was explained in the previous parable. Some things are explained in this one to, to show the change of emphasis. But, but the idea is, is that you don't need everything explained in this one because there was this parallel uh, parable in which everything was given. And so if we think then about one of the things that was, um, that was, that is not explained here is the different kinds of fish. So notice in, uh, in verse 47, the dragnet catches fish of every kind, but yet then in verses 49 and 50, there is no discussion about who these various kinds of fish are. So we have to think through then what, what is actually being meant? What is, what does the Lord Jesus Christ mean to communicate when he adds the, uh, the, detail that all different kinds of fish are caught. And one of the things I think that this, that this leads us to, that, this, uh, that he's pointing us to, is the, the reality that the, the, the fish refer to all different kinds of people, that is, all different uh, people from different nations and tribes and tongues. That is to say, the calling of the Gentiles. Um, one of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ said with regard to uh, the first disciples, he, if you remember in Matthew chapter 4, he said that he, he called them fishers of men. You will be fishers of men. And if you're with us, this was years ago, if, if you're with us, you remember that uh, this was actually a fulfillment of Jeremiah 16, where there was a prophecy that God would send forth 
people who were fishers, and they would catch people from every nation and bring them into the kingdom of God. And so there would be a restoration of Israel um, through the calling of the Gentiles. And so we have here the same sort of thing. We have a, we have a fishing thing happening where all different kinds of, of fish are in fact caught. And so this would this I think is the idea that it's going to be we're going to the 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 kingdom of God will catch people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, so to speak. Uh, again, the righteous are not described. We know that there will be blessings. They're, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, as it says in verse 43, in the, the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. But the reason it's not said here is because the emphasis in this particular parable falls on judgment. And this really, as we think through all the other things with regard to this parable, the interpretation, this is the main thing that is emphasized. The last thing that the Lord Jesus Christ communicates is a great warning. On the last day, there will be a great judgment. It is a warning to all those who will turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice some of the details about this, about the interpretation that's given. Notice the angels, they separate the wicked from the just and they cast the wicked into a furnace of fire. A furnace of fire. What this is indicating is that there will be conscious suffering outside the presence of God that will last forever. And not just a small amount of suffering. You know, if you think about a furnace, it goes without saying that there is a, a natural fear that is stirred up in the heart as you think about being put into one. You, you, you hear stories of this happening within terrible nations where people are thrown into, into furnaces and burned. And there is a natural fear that is put into the hearts of, of man when they think about what it would be like to endure that kind of thing. And the only kind of consolation would be, you know, you would die quickly. But here, that is the figure that is used to describe the punishment that the wicked will receive. That's, that's the kind of thing. It is not something that can simply be shrugged off in terms of a warning to say, you know, it won't be that bad. I, in fact, had a, a family member one time tell me he was coming closer to the end of his life and, um, you know, never really showed much interest in church, never really showed much interest in the scriptures. And just one day, kind of out of the blue, you know, we were, we had always been praying about opportunities to share the gospel with him. And one day out of the blue, he said, you know, how, how bad could hell really be? Getting close to the end of his life. And he's asking this question because he doesn't really know what's going to happen to him. And, you know, the answer that we gave was it's going to be terrible. I mean, it's, it's, it's incomprehensibly bad. You think of the, the description given in Revelation. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no way. And then once, once you go, there is no way to evade it. There's, there's no way to say, now I'm going to reach the end. That, that's, that's the kind of thing that is being spoken of. And, you know, that's what we try to lay out. You know, it's, you know, he's, how bad could it, how bad could it really be? You know, there is the, the figures that are given to us in the scriptures to, just, to describe what people will endure are beyond comprehension in terms of how bad they are. You think of even, even the suffering is described. So not just, you know, where you'll go, you know, what kind of suffering you will, 
situation you'll be in in terms of being in a furnace, but then even a description of the, of the way in which you will respond in suffering is given. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll be weeping in misery. You'll be gnashing your teeth in pain, and there will be no end in sight ever. There will be no hope. You think of the, the parable that Christ gives in Luke chapter 16, as the rich man is in great pain, and he says, you know, I, I just long to get a, just, a, 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 just a small reprieve from all this pain. And, and yet, you know, then he says, you know, can it be that you could send someone, Abraham, to, to go to my family so that they would know not to come to this place because of how badly I am suffering? And the answer given is, well, Moses and the prophets have been given to them. That should be enough. If they can't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if a man is raised from the dead. But, but brothers and sisters, um, the warning that God gives to his people, the warning that God gives to you comes through the word. That was what was said in Luke 16, through the Moses and the prophets. What you have today is the scriptures and the preaching of the word. God has sent you a minister to preach the word of God that this warning might be understood and heeded by you. It's not a warning for the world predominantly. It's a warning for you. It's a warning for those who are in the church. The kingdom of God will get all kinds of people, and some of them will be good and some of them will be bad. There are some who will hear this kind of warning and think, it probably won't be that bad. Or they'll try to say, well, God wouldn't do that. But think, brothers and sisters, about how wicked of a thing it would be to disregard this warning. Uh, not only just because of how serious of a nature the warning is. You know, you would think if, if this kind of thing is the warning that's given, surely you would make every effort to avoid these kinds of consequences if there was any kind of sense left. But then think that not only is this the case, but God has so given a way out wherein you don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn your way out. You simply receive the salvation that is offered to you in the gospel. You're not asked to pay the penalty, even though you deserve to pay the penalty. And think even further, this way out, so to speak, has been given to you. It's been bought with the blood of the eternal Son of God sent to earth just so that he could die to make it available. That's, that, that was the way out. Now think then. You have such a serious warning, incomprehensibly great suffering. And then you have this way out that God has purchased at the expense of the blood of his own son. And then for you to say, well, doesn't matter. I'll just go it alone. And to trample on the blood of Christ in that way. This is what it's speaking about. When, when the author to the Hebrews says in, in, in chapter 10, the, the judgment that will come to the person who tramples on the blood of Christ in this way. That you were set apart by the blood of Christ for God. And you said, you know what? Even though this was purchased, this way out was purchased at the expense of the blood of the eternal son of God. It's not for me. It's not for me. I'm going to disregard the warning. I'm going to reject the offer that was purchased at such a costly price. And I'm going to go my own way. That's the great sin of apostasy. And that's the warning against which the Lord Jesus Christ is, 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 is giving this, this, this warning here. He is saying, uh, if, if, you, if you turn away in that way, 
there will be a tremendous judgment for you. And all the worse, all the worse, if this particularly is your sin, if you were uh, to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ after all of these things have been given to you, there's warning after warning given, there's offer after offer of grace, and you simply go your own way. Now, many people will object to all this. Many people do. They say things like, well, surely a loving God would never send people to hell forever. They even will say, if God were to do such a thing, if God were to send someone to hell forever, surely this would make God not just. Surely I am not guilty of so great a sin. I'm not guilty of, of such great punishment that I deserve to be thrown into hell forever. But the question, brothers and sisters, is this. Even, even in, in that sort of objection, if that sort of objection is in your heart, think about this. Do you really have such little fear of God that rather than simply submit to the way of salvation that is given in the scriptures, that you'll simply say, God wouldn't do that, and based on the own imaginations of your own heart, say, I will surely be fine. Do you have so little fear of God and so little respect for the word of God, which testifies that this is really the wages of sin, that you can say, well, though I in my own conscience, know that I sin. I am able to set myself up as a judge over the eternal God who is a pure eyes to behold any evil, and I will determine whether or not God is right or wrong in sending a sinner to hell. Even that objection is an unbelievably great sin. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that objection itself is a great sin. That someone who knows in their conscience that they themselves commit great sins every day and that God will lay that conscience out before all on the last day, that 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 kind of person would then say, I have the right to say, God is not just in the way in which he executes his justice, in the way in which he judges a sinner. It's a great sin even to bring the objection. But brothers and sisters, think even further about, and if you think about the, about the, uh, about the righteousness of this, you know, Calvin once said, speaking about, about the, uh, the justice of God in sending a sinner to hell forever, he actually said, it is intolerable blasphemy. It's intolerable blasphemy to think or to even suggest that sinning against an eternal God is not worth the destruction of one sinner. So Calvin's looking at the scale and he's thinking, look, you've sinned against the eternal God and you're just one person, very insignificant in terms of all of creation. And all of creation is nothing in comparison with God. You would dare rebel against that God and think that just one sinner is unworthy of whatever kind of destruction it is, eternal, whatever. What Calvin is saying is even to suggest that is blasphemy against God because it's not recognizing how great he is. Who would dare to sin against such a God as this one? And then to then suggest, it's not that big of a deal. God's unjust if he's going to send me to hell. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the warning, the warning that is given in the scriptures is this. There really is a judgment. It's going to be really bad for all of those who do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a free offer that's given in the gospel. The moment you turn to Christ, your sins are washed away. The moment you turn, your sins are washed away. There is no other way to be saved. 
to reject this offer is itself an unspeakably great sin for which hell is very well deserved. That's the testimony of Scripture. And that's the warning that comes with regard to the kingdom of God. This kingdom is magnificent in its, in its glory. It is beyond compare in terms of its value. It is going to grow. It is going to fill the entire world. Christ will be its king. There are some who will receive it. There are some who will reject it. All of these things are true. And yet here, the last thing that is said is that there will be a judgment. Brothers and sisters, in times past, God overlooked the ignorance of the nations, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And he has given confirmation that that day will in fact come by raising him from the dead. May it be that God would grant you the grace to heed the warning and so turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to be found in him on the last day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word. Lord, we, we think of even, of even the reality. The prophets spoke of, the, of this coming day of judgment. They spoke of it in, in their own day, in their own way. And uh, Lord, we, we think of even what Joel said in Joel 2. Even as the judgment is right upon the people, and even as they've been hardened, even to that point, Joel says, even now, even now, if you will but turn, God will save you. Even now, rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn to God that you might find mercy. Lord, what a wonderful thing is your mercy and grace that you even give the message. We think of Jonah, who was commanded to give this warning uh, before, before the day came in Nineveh to the Assyrians. And he knew, he, he knew himself that the, the proclamation of the day of judgment was in fact a message of grace. For implicit in every declaration of judgment is the implication that if anyone turns, they will be saved. Lord, how thankful we are that you've given us this warning before the day of judgment. We think of your mercy and grace in this. We know that in your justice, you could very well not give any warning. Simply judge us according to the consciences that you've given to us and our own sins, which are so evil and wicked. You very easily could have done this with no warning at all. But Lord, you have chosen in your kindness to grant that before the day of judgment comes, you would proclaim that it will come. You've even given us uh, the criteria by which you'll judge. You've given us then further the revelation of your son by which we can be saved. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is. Help us to see, even as we think about these very difficult words, that even here, your wondrous grace is shown forth. And may it be that we would heed these words and that by your grace, we would respond appropriately with faith, that we would rest upon your promises as our confession says, but also, Lord, that we would tremble at your threats. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We 
cannot fit any more seats. And if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day, we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name. Thank you.